Hey podcast listeners, this is Erin, and as a new member of the Common Thread team, I've been told to continue the tradition of starting each episode with that very infamous phrase. Kobe and I sat down with Mike DeSocio, who just graduated from BU's College of Communication with a degree in journalism. Mike was also part of the Killichen Honors College, which requires seniors to do a final keystone project in their senior year. Mike decided to get creative and dig into a pressing yet often unconsidered social justice issue, that of LGBTQ youth homelessness. Mike worked with Linishte, a trans youth in Boston, over a period of five months to shed light on Boston's specific interactions with this problem and about housing crises in general, what triggers them, and the uniqueness of each individual circumstance. Without further ado, let's listen to Mike talk about his project's process, ever-evolving goals, and what he learned and hopes he, we take away about LGBTQ youth homelessness in Boston. So you decided to do a photojournalism piece on LGBTQ youth homelessness, and I was wondering first what made you choose photojournalism aside from it being your major, and then how you got interested in the issue itself. Yeah, so I think photojournalism made a lot of sense to me because when I kind of approached the project, I thought, you know, there's a traditional way to do, I guess, a college senior project as like an academic sort of research thing, could end up as a paper or something like that. That's what a lot of people do. And I just thought that was a little too dry and a little too um, formal for the story I wanted to tell and I didn't think it would connect with people in the way I wanted it to. Um, So obviously journalism being my major, photojournalism more specifically, I thought, I knew a lot about, you know, how that worked and what kind of stories you could tell with that. And um, there's actually a lot of science that shows um, people connect with stories a lot more than they connect with any other kind of information, and it moves them more, and it allows them to remember things better. So I thought um, journalism would be a great way to tell a story and explore an issue. So, um, you know, aside from it being my major, I just thought it made a lot of sense for the story. And... Uh, the story I decided to tell was about LGBTQ youth homelessness and it was for a couple different reasons. Uh, I think the first one was that there was a study uh, a few years ago out of UCLA that um, said 40% of all homeless youth in the U.S. Uh, experiencing homelessness are LGBTQ and that was like a huge number and it caught a lot of people by surprise and kind of made like national headlines and stuff. Um, and I was one of those people who was kind of surprised by that. So. Um, I wanted to see what that was like in Boston, especially because, you know, we're this liberal city, quote unquote, and um, I wanted to see if that was an issue here. So, so that was one part of it. And the other part was that I think in 2015, um, when the Supreme Court had the uh, gay marriage decision, it was obviously a huge landmark, but gave a lot of people sort of this like false sense of like victory for the whole LGBTQ rights movement. And certainly it was one victory, but it, there are still so many other struggles that uh, LGBTQ people face. And so I wanted to shine a spotlight on one of those, which was youth homelessness. Sweet. Um, so could you talk just a little bit about um, Linishta's story individually and like how you follow, not followed her, but worked with her for um, five months and kind of lived life side by side with her um, and, and how you met her also? Yeah, so when I first started the project, you know, meeting people was the biggest challenge. And, um, you know, you can't, really just go out onto the street and say, hey, who's LGBTQ youth and homeless? Like, that, you know, it's, it's, it's really, there's no way to, to definitively find people. It's just a lot of, like, approaching people in Harvard Square, which were, I knew there was a, a, a pretty substantial youth homelessness population in general. Um, and so I would just kind of talk to people, explain my project, say, do you know anyone? Are you interested? That kind of thing. Um, and I met a few people that way, and um, one other thing that helped me was that there was this truck in uh, Harvard Square that would give out like um, like medical services and like free food and things like that for homeless youth. And so uh, when I would see people kind of coming in and out of that, I would try to approach them after and just say like, again, this is what I'm doing. Um, like, if you happen to be interested, like maybe we can talk sometime. And Linishte was one of those people. Um, I we had like a super brief conversation and exchanged contact info and said, maybe we can meet up again. And then eventually we did. And we did like a sort of a formal sit down interview to start. And um, after that, um, I mean, cause you know, when I approached people, it wasn't like, hey, are you interested in me following you around for six months? That's really intimidating. So. You know, at first it was just like, hey, I'm doing a story. Um, do you want to do an interview? And that's what we did. And then um, I just tried to keep following up and say, hey, you know, maybe I can see this part of your life. Maybe I can talk to you when you're doing this, like that kind of thing. Um, 
and yeah, as you said, I ended up spending about five months, I could say significantly, like trying to experience life alongside her. So um, it was definitely really tough because it's hard to keep in contact with people who people when they don't have reliable sort of like cell service or Wi-Fi access and stuff like that, which is totally understandable. Not to mention coordinating with a journalist is like priority zero on someone's list when they're just trying to survive. Um, so, you know, all of that being completely reasonable, but um, just still the reality was there were some weeks where, you know, I'd see her a couple times and then I'd go like multiple weeks without even hearing from her, that kind of thing. So um, it was pretty touch and go over the five months, but I was able to, you know, be with her while she was in um, like certain services or um, youth spaces and things like that, see what that was like while she was just outside on the street or whatever. Um, some of the more tough moments where she was having really, really bad days or, you know, emotional difficulties and stuff like that. So um, I think I, I saw a pretty big range of it. Um, but knowing that I obviously, you know, couldn't see everything and there's a certain amount, I think that, you know, there, I just wasn't, didn't have access to. So I tried to, you know, see the most that I could in, in five months. Um, and I, I guess while I was there, I, I did a couple different things. So obviously the project was photojournalism. So uh, a lot of it was just kind of trying to blend in in the background, take pictures. Um, but at a certain point in the project, I decided I wanted there to be a really significant written piece of it as well. Um, so I tried to take, you know, as detailed notes as I could. And then there were some points where I just put down the camera and said, oh, you know, that was really interesting. Can I ask you about that? And maybe we'd have like kind of a mini interview, you know, in the middle of things. And and then as I, I started sort of writing the project, as I was doing it, something there was... Uh, a good amount of like writing, realizing where the holes were and saying like, oh wait, I don't know about that. I need more details on that. And then asking, yeah. So <clears throat> I think for our listeners, for me, uh, I think that the idea of photojournalism um, is kind of always thought of as a supplement to your everyday news story. Mm-hmm. And so if we could just kind of back up a second and go from the basics of photojournalism and telling a story mostly or entirely through pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of lay out the process for, uh, for yeah. us in, in that sense? And then on top of that, when you first thought of this project, what did it look like and then how did it change over time? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so th- so I guess, yeah, for photojournalism, I mean, there's a couple ways to go about it, but I kind of approach stories thinking about like almost like a template of like what pieces do I need to see for this to just completely be told visually. So I think... Um, you know, you almost start with like kind of a checklist and you want to be able to you kind of do like an establishing, like a visual establishing a bit. So you want to see like what's the environment that the story exists in, like, and then very ba- just on a basic level, like what does this person look like? It's really important in the beginning of a story to have like a very good like portrait of a person, you know, so people can really imagine them in their in their head when they're looking at other pictures. So I think there's like the establishing stuff. Um, you really want to I guess the, you have to decide what you're what you're telling. So, obviously, with written stories, like it's really easy. Say if there's like a statistic you want to talk about, or like some aspect of a problem, you can just write about it. But it's a lot harder sometimes to show it. So, like, you know, one of the parts of the story was like the shelter system is really problematic, for example. And like, you really can't ever get into a shelter and take pictures because there's so many rules. So it's like, how do I show that? Well, maybe there's a different way to go around it where I can show you know, since the shelter system is so problematic, this person spends a lot of time outside, so I would try to illustrate that. Um, and I think when you're trying to put together, and of course at the end of the story you want something that will sort of, like, I guess wrap it all up in a way that's poignant either emotionally or, um, you know, if there was a conflict in the story and there's some way it was resolved, you might want to show that at the end. Um, and when you're putting it all together, you know, say there's like a 10 or 15 picture story, um, you kind of want to take the viewer, I guess, through that journey. So again, from like the establishment to like, you know, really the detail and the conflict of whatever story you're telling. Um, and then to the end of it, where again, it either concludes or or something else happens. So, um, it's, I think sometimes you really don't know how that will all play out until you get to the end. And you always, you don't always know like when the end will be. Sometimes you're just like, oh wait, I think this is a good point to like make this a story now. Um, and then I, I guess, you know, I, like I said, I decided partway through that I would be doing some writing too. Um, so that I think helped me a little bit to realize that I'm going to try to tell this story as completely as possible in photos, but, you know, I do have a way to, to, 
to tell other things. And of course, you also with any good photo story have ca- captions that can add a little bit. Right. Um, so yeah, and then the second question was, how did the story change, yeah. or I guess from what I envisioned? Yeah. Yeah. So I think when I went into it, well, there were a couple things. When I went into it, I first thought it was going to be multimedia in the sense that it would not just be pictures. It would be like very heavily video, maybe like interactive, like data visualizations. Like I had all these huge ideas. I basically wanted to take like everything I learned in Calm and like synthesize it into a project, (laughs) which I now realize was very ambitious. Um, And for a couple of reasons, I ended up really simplifying it. For the first reason was that I just at one point decided I thought stills were a lot more powerful than video. Um, I think you know, if I were to do a documentary, that's one thing. But to do, like, just pieces of video, I really didn't think that was as powerful as capturing really specific moments and stills that people would just be able to kind of, like, spend more time with. Um, so I decided to kind of ditch video for the most part and do mostly stills. And then the other part was that I thought data would be a really cool way of showing, like, the scope um, of the of the problem and stuff like that. But as it turns out, it's really, really hard to collect accurate data about homelessness. Um, and I spent a lot of time trying to get to the bottom of that and like trying to find accurate numbers and I really just never found any like analysis in that way that I thought was useful to understanding the problem. So I just decided it wasn't really a, a way to tell the story effectively. And so, you know, because there wasn't great data, there wasn't great data visualizations or graphics or anything like that. So that changed and then I also thought I would have like a cast of characters um, in the sense that I was going to have like three to four uh, youth experiencing homelessness and I kind of started off talking to that many people but you know when the craziness of the fall semester kind of set in I was talking to my advisor one day and he was like you know I'd rather you go like a mile deep in one person's shoes than like just kind of very shallow with a bunch of people um, and Lena Shea happened to be the person that I had the most access to and had a pretty interesting story, obviously, so I just kind of dove into that and really made it her as the main character and made her story shine. And then obviously there was like the experts, the activists, all that kind of stuff that were in the background. Was there ever a point where you were worried about the fate of your project? Because like you said, um, the crisis at hand is gonna be her ultimate concern. So did you ever grapple with that? Yeah, constantly. yeah, there were definitely points where I was like, wow, I just spent three months on this, what if it all just falls apart now? Or like, you know, even even having done a lot of reporting, there was still like, okay, I need this one piece, and if I don't get this, like the story doesn't work kind of thing. And um, yeah, there was one point where we were like in the middle of editing, and there was like details that we needed, and I was like having a hard time getting in touch again. And um like, you know, I was worried that if I wasn't able to confirm some things, it would really throw a wrench in, like, how I was telling the story and stuff. So, yeah, there were tons of moments like that. It was kind of difficult. So you talked a lot about how um, I think photos really capture the readers or the viewers' attention to bring them into the scene of the life and empathize with the person you're talking to, but then the, the words, the journalism gives the context. Um, but what were some of the things you learned about the research that you did do or the data that you could find? What were some what were some of the things you learned about the LGBTQ youth homeless problem in Boston from that research? Yeah, I mean, I think the research actually from the national study I mentioned earlier was really important just in understanding like how LGBTQ youth homelessness comes to be. Um, and it's all pretty depressing, honestly. But uh, it was really important to understand that like there are a really big variety of reasons that youth will find themselves in this position. The most common one is being sort of kicked out of a home by, by family or um, leaving because it's unsafe, basically. Um, but there were there were a lot of other scenarios too, and I think part of part of this came out of research and part of it just came out of interviewing people. One of the most important things I learned was that each experience is really unique and different. Um, so that was that was pretty huge. And then, like I said, when I looked into the data, in a way you know, the fact that there wasn't anything super reliable just showed me that it's really hard to understand the homelessness problem. So um, certainly this the census and things like that that try to just capture kind of a broad picture of homelessness has a lot of inaccuracies. But, you know, then beyond that, it's like they're hardly collecting any data about youth, never mind LGBTQ youth. So um, I part of the research showed that there was a huge blind spot just in our understanding, you know, beyond the national study, which I would say also is pretty questionable. 
Um, specifically Boston, there's like very little understanding of the scope and um, kind of intricacies of the problem. And part of that is because, you know, as opposed to sort of what we think traditionally of chronic homelessness of make older males who kind of make up a lot of the homeless population, a lot of LGBTQ youth homelessness is kind of transient. Um, most people in that situation are not chronically homeless. Some of them end up returning to their families. Um, some of them, uh, you know, are couch surfing, doing things like that. So uh, some of them might not even conceive of themselves as homeless, even if they're not, you know, with, with a stable place to live. So, you know, one of the things the research showed was that it's just, you know, as much of a problem as it is, it's really hard to get a handle on how, or if not how significant, but how big it is and, you know, kind of what you can do to solve it. Right, it's more about home insecurity rather than homelessness. And it's not necessarily, yeah. or it doesn't start out as an economic problem necessarily. A lot of times it can be triggered by multiple different yeah. factors and then not having access to affordable housing. Right. Or so, even a safe place, right? Yeah, so one of the really interesting things actually, so yeah, a lot of the times it's definitely not triggered by economic circumstances, which is pretty unique because most other homelessness is. And... Um, I, so as part of this project, we did some panel discussions with the community and with schools and things like that, where I brought Linishte with me. We talked to, to people about the story. And we just did one last week where she said, you know, a lot of the people that I know, economics is not necessarily the main reason for their homelessness. But if you were to give them enough money, they could probably overcome everything else. So in a way, it always kind of circles back to that, even if that's not what got them there in the first place. I was really interested by the whole uh, shelters for youth homeless individuals in Boston and how, in addition to a lot of microaggressions that people face on the streets in Boston, which we often ignore, it's actually often not safe to be in those shelters depending on where they were. So do you have any like specific stories that Lanush just shared about that that contributed to her struggle to find housing? Yeah, uh, I mean, by and large, she's avoided the shelter system, but um, part of that is because she's had experiences, just for example, in showers where she's not safe, where she's faced assault. Um, actually, her um, HIV positive status is due to a sexual assault that she endured, so um, she, is, she has a lot of personal experience just not being treated with any kind of respect or safety, really, even in shelters um, or in, in public spaces, public spaces like that. So there's definitely that. And then the other part of her experience is that she doesn't present very clearly as male or female, quote unquote, like in the, in the binary, I guess. So um, she says a lot of times, even if she shows up to a shelter or a service provider, they are kind of confused, you know, when you have to check off that box, male or female, you know, and then they don't really know how to deal with her, um, things like that. So I think those two reasons are probably the, the primary um, kind of obstacles for her accessing shelter. To go back momentarily to the storytelling, I'm interested in when you meet, after meeting Lanish Day, you know, at what, did you ever find a point where you started asking some questions and um, you found, you know, you found her kind of closing up? Um, because it was just, you know, you're dealing with some very private or difficult matters, and how did you kind of overcome those points where, um, where you know, you were doing a project and you were trying to, you know, do something to tell a story, but you're facing these obstacles where an individual just kind of doesn't want to go to a certain place? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if, if you read the story of the opening scene, it's probably one of the most difficult things I had to interview her about was about a suicide attempt, and there, I think there were definitely moments talking about stuff like that where I had to tread very carefully. Um, honestly, I was amazed at how open she was about her life. And I'd say like 90% of the time she was ready to talk about almost anything. That I'm, really, I'm actually struggling to recall a moment where she said, like, no, I'm not comfortable talking about that right now. But at the same time, I did always try to approach it in a way where I would say, hey, you know, I was looking back over my notes you mentioned this one thing. Um, I would love to kind of get more details on that, but if you're not comfortable speaking about that right now, that's okay. We can talk about it another time. And, you know, because a lot of the time we were just, you know, walking around or somewhere else, otherwise in public, where you might not want to just be opening up about super personal, um, you know, experiences and, and hard things in your life. So um, I tried to, you know, find, I guess, the best moments I could out of that. And also, again, just say, you know, this is totally up to you if you want to talk about it that's great. If not, I totally understand. Um, and sometimes I would try to make it more, um, 
I don't know, maybe to make it seem more reasonable why, why I was probing into this kind of stuff, I would try to say, you know, when I was writing, I realized there was a hole here. And as someone reading it, they might really need to understand this part of that story. So um, I think for the most part, um, she understood that. And I also really didn't get into a lot of that stuff until, you know, I'd spent probably about a month and she kind of understood like, okay, this is not just one or two interviews, like you're really digging in here and um, you need to know a lot about my life. So so you had kind of a gradual process until she felt more comfortable with you. Mm-hmm. Did you ever at one point decide to say, um, this is a research project I'm, or a journalism project I'm doing and would you be okay to stay on with me long term so I can produce this for people to read about your story and others like you or was it kind of just a did you just build up over time and yeah. she became okay with it? I mean, I don't know. I, to be honest, I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, honestly, I think I, I at least briefly explained the project aspect of it in the first time we met, but again, I didn't say and it's going to take six months. Um, so, yeah, and to be honest, I didn't really know how long it would take to do the reporting at first, so, you know, it was also me just not really knowing what it was going to look like, because like I said, at first I thought it was going to be this big cast of characters, and I didn't really expect to be like digging into one person's life for that long so uh, I think both of us just kind of like grew with that as we went and yeah I mean there were conversations along the way definitely of like okay what is this going to look like where is this going and you know some of that came up in those more difficult conversations where it's like okay I'm comfortable sharing this but just so I know you know again like sort of where is this going to be published like what is the audience that kind of thing and um, and for a while I wasn't you know, because it's not like I was a reporter working for the Boston Globe knowing exactly what it was going to be. So for a long time, I didn't really know what that answer was either. But I was just upfront about the fact, you know, that I was trying to get it out into the public and things like that. And, and you know, that's why at one point we decided to use a pseudonym. Um, thankfully, even with the pseudonym, she was still uh, willing to kind of show the pictures, which were, I think, really important, but obviously, you know, show a lot of her identity. So, um yeah, it was definitely gradual, and I think as I grew to understand more what the project would look like, I just tried to share that with her as we went. Did you ever talk with her girlfriend, Tay, and did Tay use a pseudonym as well? Yeah, so Tay used a pseudonym as well, and yeah, she was often there when I was with Lunesh so it was, yeah, I spent a lot of time with her as well. Um, I never really formally interviewed her, um, although, you know, I would ask questions while I was there sometimes, and um, she was also pretty open about things and uh, one of the first times I interviewed her actually they told me they were together and they told me like their story about how they met and they were like kind of reminiscing about that and all that kind of stuff um, I don't really know that she ever expected to like be part of the story but I think as it went you know it became pretty clear that um, that relationship was really important in both of their lives so it it just kind of evolved and you know I, I wasn't totally focusing on her so I wasn't always just taking pictures of her and I don't really know that I ever focused on pictures of her individually but you know if, if there were interactions and things like that she was still you know on board with the project and comfortable being a part of it. And Tay was often kind of the groundwork for um, helping keep the initiative safe mm-hmm. and actually preventing some of her suicide attempts right? Mm-hmm. So um, did you talk more with initiative or do more research about um, the mental health treatment aspect of youth homelessness in Boston and how that works and maybe the fact that she couldn't get any other treatment besides having a good relationship with her girlfriend? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure even how much of it had to do with treatment necessarily. I think a big part of it was just dealing with a lot of past trauma in her life um, and a lot of the kind of depression and, and suicide um, kind of stuff kind of stemmed from that and um, I mean yes I certainly mental health resources can help that and I, and I'm not sure that it was an issue of her not being able to necessarily access them I just think um, you know these were things she was trying to deal with on her own and yeah I mean if you read in the story there's one point where she says like Tay was the one of the first people ever to say like don't do this because I need you here and like you're valuable and um, I guess she just never had someone else in her life to tell her that. So, you know, whether that's an issue of not having access to mental health services, I'm not sure. I just think she needed a really um, stable and valuable relationship like that to kind of get her to that place. Is that a problem? <clears throat> Is that something that uniquely affects this specific population? Um, not to say that everyone can't use uh, 
good relationship. But in this case, where a lot of times the source of, of the housing crisis is not necessarily economic, where it is something where relationships have broken down because of specific circumstances, is that something that is um, ever more important in with this specific population, do you think? Yeah, I think so. Lunesha talks a lot about the importance of the community that she's found, mm-hmm. um, specifically in Harvard Square, but just generally, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, when you're, I guess, especially with family, that's really hard, but when you have relationships in your life that have kind of fallen apart, it's really important to find other people to rely on. Um, I mean, mainly, honestly, just as a matter of survival. I mean, a lot of the time it's like, um, if you're with people, it's easier to find maybe a place to sleep or, if, you know, maybe one person got a lot of food and they can share it with the rest of the group and things like that. So I think that, especially with youth, again, like when you're they're kind of so out on their own, like it's really, really important for them to have those relationships. Um, and then obviously just on an emotional level, like you need someone to kind of go through it with. And um, Tay had sort of her own level of, of experience with homelessness too. So you know, it's someone who can share the experience and understand it. Um, and I think that's, yeah, even more essential when you're so out on your own and so in need of support in so many ways. Did you did you ever get into, um, you talked about building a community and socializing. Did you ever, ever, ever get into how that sort of happens, um, the sort of way ways people meet each other and create networks? Um, where they're facing all these sorts of difficult situations. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent it, it happens, I mean, just like, I don't know, I, mean, I think it just happens based on, like, matter of circumstance. Like, right. some of it's just, like, Harvard Squares where a lot of people congregate because a lot of services are there, and so if you're using the same services and you're in the same place, it's really easy to kind of right. just create a network from there. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Laneshte has had experience in probably like every social service provider in Boston at this point. Um, and so she has a huge knowledge of how all of that works. And I think through her experiences and all of that, she has built a lot of networks. Um, and a really significant part of her life too is doing um, advocacy work with a, a couple different organizations. So that's also a really big part of her network because people from often similar experience to hers will come together to do this kind of work. And then from there again, she's making more relationships with people who have a shared experience. Yeah, I was really interested in that advocacy piece because um, we talked about how how active she was Mm -hmm. in um, fighting for LGBTQ youth homeless rights, and um, I was just, I I mean, I'm amazed by the strength that that takes because if she's looking to live on a day-to-day basis or find the next place to live, Mm -hmm. um, did you ever talk to her in depth about why she chooses to be an advocate or, like, how she how she allocates, honestly, her time and resources to do that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that's a really inspiring part of it. And, yeah, she's she's definitely talked about that. I mean, part of it is it's actually a way that it helps her um, financially support herself because she does get paid for a lot of the advocacy work. Um, and so I think part of it's just a really important way for her. It's one of the few things, actually, that she can do to work and, and support herself. So that's a really important part of it. Um, but yeah, you're right. It definitely is really, I think, difficult for her to manage all of that. Um, I mean, I, again, I'm often amazed at how she's able to kind of juggle all of it. And, um, yeah, she often does multiple shifts at like multiple different jobs every day. And then, um, at night we'll have to sort of figure everything else out and and stuff like that. So I think she's, she continues to do it because it's something that she, gets a lot of satisfaction out of, especially being someone who's gone through, again, a lot of trauma and a lot of a lot of different lived experiences, she um, is able to really put a lot of that to productive use through her work. So the one thing is suicide prevention, um, where she goes to schools and talks to, to kids about that. And um, she, I think, really, really enjoys the mentorship aspect of that. Um, and then one of the other jobs she has is actually training people to be peer mentors. So it's a it's a program that she has previously gone through, and now she is sort of one of the people facilitating it. And she helps other people who've had similar experiences learn how to take that and be productive and kind of work with it just as she is. So, uh, again, part of it's, you know, financial, but then I think a big part of it, too, is that she gets a ton of satisfaction out of being able to use what has happened to her to help other people. Did you say that um, you were doing sort of talkbacks or Q&As with Lanisha? Did you mention that? Sort of like interviews, you mean? Like interviews? Yeah. Um, with p- 
people asking questions. Oh, right. So the panel kind of the panel, yeah, the yeah, panel yes, kind yes, of things. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm I'm curious to know, you know, what have been the reactions that you've gotten when you do those sorts of things? What sorts what sorts of questions have you been getting, um, and just what that experience has been like generally? Because you know, to to put a story uh, to put a story, you know, in photos and write it is one thing. Your audience isn't really in front of you, mm. but then when your audience is in front of you and you have the capacity to, to speak with them, what is that like? Yeah, it, it was, it's been really valuable, I think. And part of the reason why we did it is because, again, we wanted to take it beyond just like the printed page. And I thought that especially high schools would be a really good place to do that because they have the potential to really support their peers um, and kind of help build stronger communities that may you know, prevent this kind of thing from happening as much. And so um, when we did these panels, basically it was, um, well, a couple of them were more involved panels. A couple of them were just me and Lynette today talking about the story. And people have always been extremely impressed with her, um, just at her resilience and her um, optimism, which are both things that I've noticed as well. But I think oftentimes the questions and comments have been like, wow, like how do you do this all? And like, you know, we're so amazed and inspired that you've made it through all of this. Um, people have often always been really impressed by her, um, how articulate she is. Um, and her English is not her first language. She knows a few different languages, but um, English she learned pretty recently, actually. So and, and she speaks very, very well. Um, so, she, so a lot of people are often very amazed at that. Um, but I think people especially at the high schools have been just really grateful that we were able to share the story so at the high schools we often met with um like a straight alliance clubs and they were so grateful to kind of be able to see a different part of the lgbt experience that they often didn't think about and um many of them would go up to the initiative after and try to ask her more questions and talk to her and learn what they could do to support people and you know if they found someone else going through a similar thing you know what's the best course of action and things like that. So I think overall people were really, really grateful to hear the story and to have a chance to talk to Lanesha in person. I think that was a big part of it too. Even if people had read the story, they really valued the opportunity to kind of um, get more in depth or, or ask more questions and things like that. Did you ever accompany her on one of her independent like workshops with high schoolers, with one of her advocacy groups, where it wasn't about like your photojournalism project, mm-hmm. it was her talking about suicide, for example, and you just witnessed it. Yeah, so unfortunately, schools are just really tough, and I wasn't ever able to get into a school as a journalist. Um, But I did go to one of the sessions for the suicide prevention organization where she was helping to train, like, sort of new members of that organization uh, and kind of advising them on how they can tell their stories and how they can interact at these events. So... I was able to see her sort of in that realm. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to see her, you know, in a classroom doing that. Um, it was just a matter of access, fortunately. Did you see any difference in how um, maybe she opened up about her individual story when she was at the schools with you versus when she took on that leadership role? Um, was there any difference in how she hmm. kind of portrayed her story? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think when she was in the leadership role at this, like, sort of workshop, it was less about her, more about kind of workshopping other people's stories, so le- less of a difference there. But I think there was even sometimes a difference in the way she told her story, you know, at the high schools with me than when we just talked about it, like, one-on-one. Um, sometimes she would say things like, oh, that's new, like, I didn't know that. Um, or she would just kind of frame it in a new way that made me um, kind of think about it differently. And I don't know, in a way, if I were to write the story again, I, I think there's, like, a little bit more nuance now that I'd be able to bring to it. Um, just because now I've heard her like kind of retell like the whole thing like five or six times like after the fact. So I mean, yeah, yeah you just notice new things. So small things, but yeah. Do you have any examples that stand out? Um, I think one of the bigger ones is the story of her childhood, which is very complicated, and I spent a lot of time trying to understand. But um, in short, she. She was not from the U.S. originally, and she spent she grew up in Romania and spent time in a few different places. And um, that story was always really hard for me to get a handle on. Um, and I think every time she talked about it, she, you know, either introduced a new detail or like told it a little bit differently. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe I would have tried to kind of get a little more deep into that if if I were to do it again. But 
that was one of the things I noticed, yeah. But you ultimately decided that um, to tell her story overall, since you didn't have all the puzzle pieces together, that it, it might not be necessary to set up the story for readers. Well, I think, I mean, I, I did dig into it pretty pretty hard when I was writing it at first, and I mean, it was, you know, I tried to get the best understanding of it I could. We ended up deciding to leave it pretty general in the story just for the sake of, like, length, I think, because we realized that, though important, it wasn't, like, the main point of the story, so we didn't want to bog it down. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know that it was, like, a missing puzzle piece. I just think, you know, again, when you hear someone retell something a bunch of times, it just there's a little nuance to it every time that you kind of pick up. So, um, yeah, that, that was really it. You went to um, the Bentley Public Library last Belmont. week. Belmont. Belmont yeah. Public mm-hmm. Library last week. Was that, that wasn't with the school, right? It was with just the public, with the community. Yeah. Was that any, was that a much different response or? Yeah, it was. Yeah, so it was mostly an older crowd. Um, I'd say like, you know, probably middle-aged folks. But um, it was definitely different because it leaned a lot more heavily toward like the politics of it. Um and people were asking questions about like funding for programs and like legislation and um, sort of like city policy and all that kind of stuff, which I think the average high school student is not like really plugged into. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that's it. They still were also very interested in, in Laneshe's per- personal experience. So the panel that we did was Laneshe, and then one of the um, experts for my story named Joe Finn, who runs an advocacy organization in Boston. So he was able to speak to a ton of the policy things. And I think a lot of adults, too, have familiarity with, like, Section 8 and these, like, traditional, like, housing subsidy programs that we think of. So they had a lot of questions about, like, why does that work? How does that fit into this? Um, or, like, people would say, like, I have this traditional understanding of homelessness about, like, you know, chronic homelessness in shelters. Like, how is LGBTQ youth homelessness different? Like, what is youth experience like? So I think there was much more again, much more like of a policy focus and also people trying to understand like how this fit in with their existing understanding of homelessness. So I understand that you're perhaps not an expert on the public policy portion, but based on what you heard, um, what you heard here, you know, what are some of the things uh, in a more, in a broader sense that can help address this specific issue from a public policy perspective? Yeah. um, Like I said earlier, it's definitely really hard because people are really still trying to like understand what the LGBT youth experience is but um, I think what so much of this comes down to well there are two things I think one of them is community so um, I think from a policy standpoint communities need to be more willing to support housing just like in all of its forms Um, people I mean there's a lot of like you know people call it NIMBYism not in my backyard that kind of thing where uh, communities are often are not willing to really make a substantial commitment to like affordable housing. Um, I think that's a big part of it, even for youth, because you know when I talked about youth in the story, you know it was yeah under eighteen, but also like eighteen to twenty four, and so like you know young adults are also looking for like housing on their own. So I think that's a big part of it. But then also there's just funding too, right? So not all of the youth resources are are funded by the city. Um, in fact, one of the most prominent and helpful youth shelters is privately funded. But um, there are a lot of publicly funded resources. I actually just heard last week that one of them is losing most of its funding and might close down. And it's one that Linus has like credited to her survival on a number of occasions. So I think, um, you know, Boston is a place actually that spends a lot more money on homelessness than a lot of other cities. But even so, um, I just think that the funding is a really important part of, you know, the policy aspect of it. So that actually raised a question in that when you were talking about Harvard Square as a place, as a network, because it has a lot of resources around there, um, I'm curious, and this might be something that was lost in your kind of like incapacity to find really good data on this, but is this a problem where um, people in other communities are finding themselves in a housing crisis and coming to Boston to access the resources, or is this more of a homegrown problem from Boston where this is happening here and we find people on these streets that are, mm-hmm. are from here? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, but I think it's more people come to Boston. Yeah. Um, a lot of the people I talked to were from, like, the greater Boston area, but, I mean, that's, like, I mean, it could be, like, you know, North Shore, South Shore, all of that could yeah. be considered, like, greater Boston, I guess. So, 
Yeah, there was a lot, definitely, of people saying, like, okay, I'm in this situation. I've heard Cambridge has really good resources. Let me go to Harvard Square. Um, That's the easiest place where I can survive. So that's a huge part of it. Um, I I think that's definitely the bigger piece than than is, like, people in the city limits of Boston or Cambridge proper um, becoming homeless. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's even Laneshja's story. When she decided to move to the U.S., she heard Boston or Seattle were safe places to be or like had a lot yeah. of resources so she decided on Boston so uh yeah I mean I guess I guess that's a good a good thing in a way that Boston has a good reputation for having a lot of resources but um yeah I think a lot of people are congregating there for that reason right right I I just asked from the perspective of if you're trying to address uh, address address it through public policy mm. it's that you know there are certain issues you can handle you know within Boston city limits if you're mm-hmm. you know um, Mayor Walsh, but uh, at a certain level, you might have to start talking about the issue at a state level. I um, mean, at, at a certain point, if if you just have the best resources and people want to come here, you just mm-hmm. need to figure out how to sort of expand the scope of the resources, right? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, there's like a Massachusetts commission on LGBTQ youth and all that yeah. kind of thing, and yeah, I think that conversation's happening because yeah. yeah, people realize that it's not enough just to say, okay, Boston has great resources when it's being sort of overwhelmed by like, the whole exactly. state. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, I think part of it comes back to the community thing. Like, if like communities all over the state are willing to like support their youth and provide affordable housing and that kind of stuff, then maybe there's less of a pull to Boston in the first place. Yeah, right. it's definitely not just a city thing. Right. Or Boston would need more resources to account for the pull. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess either way, but I guess there needs to needs to be somewhere for people to go. Oh, yeah, definitely. So. Um, so looking at homelessness overall, I know a big um, initiative is just housing first and like in getting people in homes first and then dealing with other issues. Because once you have a house, it's much easier to get a stable job and to be able to support yourself in terms of food and finances. So is that the kind of target point for youth homelessness as well is to get people in houses or does it take a more community approach or a different mm-hmm. approach because they're youth? I think it depends. Um, I think for, like, the 18 to 24 range, it probably makes more sense to focus on, like, a housing first because at, if they've left home at that point or if they've, you know, they left home earlier, but, you know, now they're in that age range, I think it makes more sense to try to get them on their feet as independent adults yet, yeah. something like housing first maybe, or, I mean, I think people are trying to even understand, like, are there different housing solutions for this, like, cohort, which I don't think anyone's really figured out yet, but... Um, but I think the younger part of it, there's also a big push to kind of like reunite people with their families in a way. And that could be very problematic because you don't want to send people back into a dangerous environment. Um, but at the same time, like Tay is an example from the story. She, when I first started, was kind of couch surfing and didn't have a safe place to be. And then, and now actually she's moved back in with her mother. So she kind of, with the time she spent apart, was able to mature a little bit and they were able to sort out their differences and now they have a stable relationship that you know is safe so um i think there's definitely also a push to kind of figure out are we able to just get them back to their home because that's probably if it can be safe the best situation um and you know then there's also the aspect that people you know get pulled into like the foster care system and things like that and often if they're under 18 don't really have much of a choice of where they go if they're not um Home. Are there any shelters specifically for youth or for LGBTQ youth? Because that would kind of circumvent the problem of facing a lot of assault or abuse yeah, in other shelters. Definitely. So there's there's one. Um, it's called Y to Y. It's in Harvard Square. And uh, it's the one I mentioned earlier that's mostly privately funded. And basically, yeah, it was set up by two recent Harvard graduates. And their whole thing is that they're run by youth and for youth. Um, and the youth that they serve are actually involved in a lot of the decision-making processes, like, of the shelter, which is pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, it's, like, totally catered to youth. Like, the space is very uh, welcoming. It has, like, you know, like, video games and computers and, like, all this kind of stuff and a kitchen, like, all this great, um, all these great resources. And then the sleeping arrangements are, are unique, definitely, because they have these, like, pods. Um, it's not just, like, a bunch of beds on a dorm room, really. It's, like everyone gets this little pod with like a locked door that you can just kind of like shelter yourself away in um and so yeah and so that's focused on youth broadly but lgbtq youth specifically have kind of gravitated to that because um you know it's just such a so much safer than like any other option and uh yeah it's just you know it's it's been a huge resource for a lot of the people i talk to 
So you talked about in earlier today and in your story about how she's HIV positive, um, but actually has um, backed off of her um, antiretroviral drugs um, because I mean they're they're honestly very dangerous and hard to sustain. You have to take them like every four hours or something. Um, did you go into depth with her about being HIV positive and what that means both socially and medically? Because you know HIV. Um, doesn't often present itself till 10 years later, so mm-hmm. going off the drugs is very dangerous in the long run, but again, it's more of a short-term crisis situation that she can't cover right now. Yeah, I mean, a big part of it um, was uh, was malnutrition, like you, I'm sure you know from the story, which is basically that, I mean, you, like you said, that drugs are demanding in the first place, but mm-hmm. especially if you can't... Um, you can't really stomach them, then it's you're throwing them up, and you know she said she never was able to hold them down for more than seven minutes. Um, so that was like part of it, and I think it kind of underscores, you know, another issue, which is that even for like say healthcare resources that are focused toward like LGBTQ or like HIV issues, they might not understand the issue of homelessness super well. So they might say like, oh yeah, just take this drug every four hours or you know something else. It's just well, that's not reasonable in my situation. So. Um, yeah, and she has unfortunately had to rely a lot on emergency room care. Um, when I talked to her about it, she said she basically just wasn't seeing a doctor, and when it got really bad, she would go to the emergency room. Um, I think she mentioned recently that she's been seeing a doctor, so I'm not sure if that's changed since the story was published. But um, yeah, it's so yeah, it's medically it's a big issue, and I guess socially, I kind of I think it feeds into um, a bigger issue for her, where sometimes she has trouble kind of relating to other people because she has I think so much that she feels like she needs to like I don't know unload in a way where it's like to really open up to someone there's like so much on the table so uh I think it makes it a little bit harder for her to connect with people and to not like unfortunately scare people away in a sense which I think is what happens mm-hmm. sometimes. Did you ever talk to her about um like the consequences of a non-adherence to HIV medications and how like does she realize that it's, I mean, it's not going to be okay in the long run, but... Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we didn't get too much into that. Um, the HIV thing was something that I learned about pretty late in the game, and I think at that point... I mean, I tried to learn about it enough to include it in the story, but I really didn't want to, like, dig into it too much. Um, you know, I just... Yeah, I guess it just wasn't, like, the main focus, so... I'm sure she realizes that. I never really got into that with her. Um, but I think part of it was also that she, um, as depressing as it is, didn't have like a super optimistic outlook for her future in general. So I don't think she was thinking like 10 years out right. about like what this might mean for her. Right, and that's just a whole other issue yeah. to, to yeah. delve into. Um, how did she gain access to the medications at first, though? And how does she fund that? That's the first part of my question. The second part is... Um, looking at emergency room visits overall and how like a lot of um, cities right now are trying to really reduce that and get actually get the chronically homeless off the streets um, which a lot of people are kind of pushing back on because they're like oh we have mothers that are trying to work and get affordable housing for their kids why should we take care of this person that's been on the street Mm -hmm. for years Um, but actually looking that the cost would it would actually benefit the cost of the government overall if we didn't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars per ER visit. Um, I don't yeah. know if you've addressed that. Yeah, <laughs> so actually I helped produce a show at WBOR about this topic. There's a, a um, government official in Hawaii who is trying to, I think in Hawaii, um, well anyway, there's a movement in the U.S. for healthcare as like a solution to homelessness in a sense. So the, the idea is basically if we were to treat homelessness as a healthcare issue and say medical insurance will pay for housing kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, you would be able to kind of the same idea of housing first, right? Like stabilize people's lives, you know, while you're there, kind of get them into stable medical care and reduce things like emergency room costs, cost in law enforcement that are a huge part of the homelessness right. problem as well. So there is definitely um yeah like like you said a movement to kind of reduce um the reliance on emergency rooms and uh find a way to you know give people one stable health care but also stable housing that would reduce the costs kind of overall and how um how is she funding her health care um 
to be honest, I'm not sure because, like I said, her, like, seeing a doctor was pretty recent. Um, so I'm not sure if, you know, it's... Because there is... There are organizations like Boston's, like, Healthcare for the Homeless and, and things like that. So I'm not sure she's accessing it through that or something else. Um, not really something I've followed up with her about. Right. Okay, so you talked earlier briefly about kind of the misperception um, of Boston being a safe place because we're a very liberal city um, for LGBTQ people, but that there's often, like, a lot of um, n- unspoken about problems, um, both microaggressions and, like, uh, policy or services-based problems in Boston. Um, so could you speak more on that and maybe, like, one of your biggest takeaways to share with people about the story you just did. Yeah, so certainly Boston is probably better than a lot of other places, but um, in other ways it's not. In her own words, being gay in Boston is is a lot harder um, than other places she has lived. So uh, I think some of that is, I mean, actually there was a report recently in the Boston Globe that um, LGBTQ people are the most frequently targeted um, group for like hate crimes and other forms of violence in Boston, um, more so than racial minorities or things like that. And so, I mean, that's pretty shocking to me. Um, so I think, you know, just from like a physical safety standpoint, like Boston clearly is not a safe place for LGBTQ people. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot in the, by way of like microaggressions, just like um, unwillingness to like understand or accept, you know, this kind of thing. And um, yeah, I think it really runs counter even to what my understanding was before this story was that okay we're like we have all these liberal policies Massachusetts was the first state to legalize gay marriage like great except you know policy even as progressive as it is can only do so much and uh, I think the sad fact is there are still a lot of people in Boston and Massachusetts who are um, very hostile to the idea of LGBTQ people more broadly. Well, thank you for sharing the story because hopefully that will get more people on board with this issue and everyone should read his article yeah, and dig we'll link Boston. to it on the website. Yeah. Um, and thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Hey, podcast listeners. We hope you enjoyed Mike's discussion about photojournalism and the specific aspects of LGBTQ youth homelessness in Boston and where we as a city might be heading to support this population. Historian Dig Boston has already done a great job of getting the word out to people, and hopefully with more discussion and exposure to individual stories and experiences, we as a city can become more open to providing resources and safe places for these youth. Make sure to check out Mike's article, which is linked in our website, and in the meantime, we'll keep looking for the common thread.